Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the first in my Middle Grade trilogy. That book is available as an audiobook, a paperback, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as Altogether Now a Zombie Story, my young adult novel, uh, and The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel. Uh, if you're curious about that, the first installment, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, is available as a paperback, or the e-book is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine e-books are sold. Uh, for more information on the books, more information about me, more important, more information about what's going on with the show, who our future guests are going to be, uh, as well as uh, interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, folks you would find interesting. Uh, for all of that, head to middlegradeninja.com. As I record this, it is September 19th of 2020. It has been uh, a particularly rough week, week and a half here, even by the standards of 2020. Um, I have been losing sleep over revelations in Bob Woodward's book, Rage, uh, just last night. Uh, tragically, we, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I don't have uh, the words to address either of those subjects, and I'm not a political pundit, so I'm not about to attempt it, uh, other than to say that you need to make your plan to vote. Uh, 2020 will be the most consequential uh, election, certainly of my lifetime, I think possibly in the history of the United States. Uh, so nobody sits uh, on the bench this year. Um, get your absentee ballot requested if you haven't done so already. If you want to vote in person, check uh, your state's uh, website. Uh, find out where early polling is going to happen, when it's going to happen. Uh, and make your plan, or November 3rd, you get there as early as you possibly can, and bring people with you. Again, nobody on the bench this year. Make your plan to vote. Uh, today I'm talking with literary agent Jim McCarthy, and we have an absolutely wonderful conversation. Uh, we talk about his career in publishing. We talk about um, his experience of having uh, the first book he sold take off and do extremely well. We talk about a haunted apartment, uh, all kinds of wonderful stuff. Uh, one note about our conversation. At one point, I mentioned Black Panther, and I don't mention the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman. Uh, and the reason why is we record these shows uh, ahead of time, and at the time we recorded this episode, that uh, awful event hadn't occurred yet. Uh, otherwise, obviously, I, I would have mentioned it because we're, you know, we're all heartbroken uh, to have lost Chadwick Boseman. Um, so that's it. Uh, enough from me. Let's start the show. Jim McCarthy, how are you, sir? Good. How are you? I am excellent. I couldn't be more thrilled to speak with you. Uh, this is an interview I've been looking forward to, so I appreciate you making time for me and for esteemed audience. My pleasure. Well, I uh, never try to state anyone's biography up front because you'll be listening to me and you'll say, why didn't he mention that I want to pull it surprise and it will just be <laughs> awkward and, and, and terrible. Uh, so the probably the best place to start is if you would give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure thing. I am a literary agent and vice president at Distal Goderich and Barrett. I started there in 1999 as an intern. And uh, when I graduated from college in 2002, there was a, a full-time job that just happened to open up. And I've been there ever since. Uh, it's 
been a, a, a wonderful two decades, and I represent uh, mostly fiction and mostly fiction in the young adults and middle grade spaces. I occasionally dabble in adult, I dabble in nonfiction. Uh, a couple clients have written picture books that have brought me into that that sphere, but but middle grade and, and young adult fiction are are really the heart of what I do um, and what I have been doing for for the better part of my my time at DGB. If somebody were to query you with a fantastic picture book and they didn't intend to write middle grade or young adult, uh, would that be something that you would be taking that you would be putting weighty consideration behind whatever the diplomatic way is to phrase that? <laughs> uh, no, I would, when people query me for only picture books, I put them in touch with uh, John Rudolph or Stacy Glick, who are colleagues of mine who know the space and are wonderful at it and are, are better suited to, to helping people in that space than I am. So, so I'm not looking for anyone uh, specifically who does picture books, but but if if a beloved client happens to venture into that space, I I make an exception. I got you. So you heard him, esteemed audience. Hook him with your middle grade and your young adult, <laughs> and once he can't get enough, then <laughs> spring the picture books. Yeah. Uh, and uh, savvy esteemed audience members will know that they can check the back catalog for a podcast episode with John Rudolph. Uh, and Stacy Glick, if you're listening, you are welcome to come on at any point. <laughs> so 1999, that's when you're out of college and you're starting. Were you concerned that uh, Y2K was going to take away publishing uh, before you <laughs> even get started? <laughs> you know, we, I, I now 21 years in have heard so many rumors of the end of publishing. <laughs> you know, I don't know the Y2K was one, but but definitely ebooks were going to kill publishing and and certainly the current moment people expressing fears that the the coronavirus is going to kill publishing. And at a certain point I just uh, stopped acknowledging that the, this idea that that anything will end publishing i think you know since the the dawn of the radio people have been predicting the end of the written word and and i you know i i feel like i can call it that we're we're in it for the long haul publishing's going to stick around um and yeah we're going to be selling books for for a long long time uh, certainly beyond our lifetime. So it, it may be that we never know what the actual conspiracy is. It's going to kill publishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to venture a guess. <laughs> um, so I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, you know, the elephant in the room. We got to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and how it's impacting your business, publishing, all of that good stuff. Um, and I was going to tease it. What the heck? We're here. Let's, let's talk about it. Sure. <laughs> How has that impacted you so far? And, and knowing that nobody knows everything, how do you foresee that impacting publishing as a whole? Yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. I was actually in the process of making the decision about whether or not to start working from home uh, permanently going forward, and then. COVID nineteen happened. Our office closed, and here here I am in my in decision my new home made. office. Yeah, decision <laughs> made. Um, I thought it would be incredibly easy. Uh, in some ways, that's borne out. In some ways, it hasn't. I miss 
the camaraderie of of going in and 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 having conversations with uh, my colleagues. We still see each other at least three or four times a week. We have uh, Zoom calls with everybody where we talk about what's happening and check in. We talk about all of our submissions. But it's publishing is such an industry of relationships and I I think something is lost when when you don't have the face-to-face -face element and Zoom calls and, and, and phone calls, they can replace a lot, but but they can't replace everything. And there's that sort of that intangible piece that 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 is difficult for me, that that I feel a little adrift without having, you know, my lunch lunches with editors to check in and sort of see where people are. It just it feels a little more impersonal than it has in the past. That said, we're very lucky. We've been able to manage all of our computer systems, all of our databases, so that everyone can access just about everything from home. And and transitioning the financial part of our jobs into uh, the work from home space was the hardest. And I think it seems to have been the hardest for publishers as well. Um, contracts and financials are 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 the departments that seem to be lagging the most but but Was we're for, uh, security concerns about how to keep all that information safe or well for us there was there was the really um just practical concern that we couldn't access our checks so so we didn't know we didn't have uh wire information for all of our clients so Oh my. That first week was a real scramble to email every single client, kind of prioritizing people we knew were about to be paid and then extending to everyone who could be paid and and uh, and building a new database of 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 electronic banking information that we could we could handle and, and making sure that checks were being forwarded to people at home so that we could deposit them and not have to go into the office to get them um a, yeah really a, a surprising amount of of work was still done by check and that that was the hardest part for us um you know you forget that as much as as much as we have shifted to the internet shifted to uh you know server-based uh programs um there are still some things that we just do have always done on paper and we've not we've never been the most technical technologically advanced industry so you know it's it's there there have been some hiccups but but we're pretty lucky in terms of what happens going forward I th i'm concerned about fall 2020 i think that uh books that were delayed at the beginning of the crisis uh summer books that were pushed into fall are all going to start to come out and there might be such a backlog of new material that it's going to be harder for books to stand out because we're kind of trying to cram two seasons into one. Um, but once we get through that log jam, I think, I think we're going to be okay. Gotcha. So we'll have uh, one season of, of that's a great, and then, but by the time we get into spring, we'll... I think we're going to be pretty normal. I uh, hope. 
I hope it's, it's possible, and I, I say this as somebody with absolutely no knowledge <laughs> whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, is it possible on the optimistic side that because we're not getting our Wonder Woman 1984, we're not getting our Black Widow, all our beautiful movies have been delayed. Uh, hopefully we'll still get our PS5s and our Xboxes and all that good <laughs> stuff. Um, but with um, so much space open and more people spending time at home than ever, um, I know that I've I've been seeing uh, book sales go up for a number of friends anecdotally. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I I, I know anecdotally some people who haven't been the big readers that they used to be have been coming back to it because they've had more time. So is there maybe some hope along that that track? I think there is. I think that, you know, people have had, some people have had a lot more time on their hands than than they used to and have been looking to books for entertainment um, and and remembering how much they do love reading. I, I think uh, backlist titles, books that have been popular for a long time, those are they're finding so many new readers. Word of mouth is pushing sales so strongly. Big box stores uh, are selling more books than they ever have before. Um, there are definitely reasons to be encouraged. There are also reasons to be concerned uh, in terms of independent realtor uh, retailers and new books having a harder time standing out. But I, th- <laughs> I think it's going to balance out. I think I think things will will shift back to relative normal. Um, in the near future, I'm hoping, and and hopefully, the net gain of book sales is is up. Uh, your your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, fingers <laughs> crossed. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> well, um, how are you seeing? What are the smartest things you're seeing authors do and publishers do, and what are you recommending that your authors do to better position your themselves for? whatever the new reality is that's going to emerge post-quarantine or mid-quarantine. God knows how long this thing might go on. Yeah, I I think that what's been really important is for people to manage themselves and, and make sure they're not over-committing to, especially to social media. I think it can be deadly if if you let it take over your life um the 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 stress of being on and feeling like you're always selling can be too much but but on the other hand we're seeing so many bookstore events that are better publicized better attended uh than they ever were in real life and there's something really inspiring about how many people are showing up to book launches at an independent books that bookstores that may not even be anywhere near them. I, I know that the Astoria bookshop, which is my local indie only you know, three blocks from, from home is doing three or four major events a week uh, that are fueling a lot of sales and and reaching a lot of people. So I think finding those retailers, finding whoever is working on new festivals, new um, 
or or old festivals that are are finding new ways to to be done this year. I think uh, I've been really inspired by the 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 amount of effort being put into new ways to share information, whether it's um, Las Musas is an organization that's putting together the first uh, the, the first ever next uh, in kids publishing festival for this December. That's one that was just announced yesterday. Uh, so it's at the top of my mind, but, but we're seeing so, so much content being shared online. And I don't think it's taking people, taking authors longer to participate. Uh, it's just, um, it, it it's just sort of shifting what's expected. I had an author whose book came out last Tuesday and she was saying she had to get up at four in the morning to start doing radio interviews. And I, I was commiserating with her. Uh, but then she said, you know, if I was touring as I was supposed to be, I'd be up at this time for, for a flight anyway. So in a lot of ways, you know, she was getting to more people than she would have on a on a traditional tour, and you know, still still putting in the, the same hours, but but to to different and and hopefully relatively equal effect. Well, do we want to say the author's name and the name of the book to save her? Sure, a that was uh, Taylor K. Mejia for her book. Palo Santiago and the River of Tears, which came out from Rick Riordan Presents last Tuesday, which was oof, August 7th, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> dates are dates are where I'm shakiest during this whole pandemic. Yeah, time has uh, no real meaning anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. I'm uh, surprised every week when I somehow instinctively remember what day to put my trash can out. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's good work. I've, yeah, I've not always been that lucky. And now, since everything's streaming, I don't remember the last time I watched network television. That used to be the trick for remembering the days when you were home at all at all times. I on television. <laughs> it's Friends. Oh, it's must see TV. It must be Thursday. <laughs> Tragically, I'm a big fan of uh, Big Brother because I love terrible reality television so that is a new season has just begun and cbs has has me by by the neck now for the remainder of the to summer get you on their uh, all access that so you you'll be it, forced to enjoy it yes they do yeah we got hooked by uh disney plus my six-year-old has been singing hamilton since he was about three and a half Okay. Uh, and now it's been playing on a loop since the day it, it launched. <laughs> so, yeah. There are worse Disney things Plus to have. wanted to discontinue Hamilton. I know that would upset the rest of the world, but I'd be okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> you could use a break. <laughs> Just take it away for a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so lots of uh, follow-up questions about everything. Um. Well, let's start uh, at the, at, back at the beginning, uh, and we'll, we'll catch up to the present again. So back in 1999, um, something that fascinated about me, uh, fascinated me about your bio was that you had started off uh, focused on city planning, yeah. which is not usually the background that then like, oh, <laughs> I knew he would become a literary agent. So when did that shift? It, I didn't. 
I never really chose publishing so much as 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 publishing chose me. I got incredibly lucky. I was it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. I had every intention of studying uh, city planning, urban design and going to grad school. But I needed a part time job because I was living in New York City and it was expensive and my savings was not was not lasting as long as I thought it would. Uh, so I needed another job and sent out 45 resumes. And the first person to call me back was Stacy Glick, my my coworker to this day. She called me within 24 hours. I was in the office the next day for an interview and had the job the day after that. So I didn't even know what a literary agent was at that point. I just sent in my resume thinking, I like books, I like to read. So whatever this whole thing is <laughs> might be interesting. And from there, it was a pro it was a really quick process of falling in love. I I loved diving into the slush pile, um, which at that point was an actual pile. <laughs> we had milk crates full of query letters, and there was just this sense of potential that was so inspiring, uh, that was so exciting, and and. I think it was maybe my second year was the first time I read a book and it and recommended it to Jane and Miriam, who uh, have always run the agency. Michael's now a partner, um, but but it was Jane and Miriam at the time, and they signed the book on and sold it for six figures, and that was my first hint that you know, maybe I know what I'm doing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something here and I would be able to do it. And I was so cared for and nurtured in the position that I would, I would quit periodically about every six months and go work for the city parks foundation or the park conservatory. Um, and uh, do that for a little while because I thought it was what I was going to do with my life. Um, and I just kept finding myself back at Jane's door <laughs> waiting to be let back in. And they took me back three separate times. And I'm endlessly grateful that they did because it's turned into, you know, a dream career. I love this. Usually it's authors that are, I, I can't do it. I can't stick with it. And <laughs> it's the agent two times. So that must have been just a heck of an interview uh, or, or, or nobody else in all of New York was uh, was interested in the position that you have the one interview she hires you the next day. You've got no background in books. No. I Did you come into the interview saying I have a, a, a very strong focus on novels. It's all I want with a, with a really good line. Or do you, I'm asking you about something that happened 21 years ago. I don't know. I know. I'm not sure. I think I walked in, you know, I have, I have a lot of guilt about this because I know how hard it is to break into publishing and I really just fell through the cracks um, and, and was incredibly lucky. But I, I don't know that I, I wish I could say I had some, uh, brilliant plan, brilliant scheme, great interview technique. Uh, but 
mostly I just researched the agency, read the entire client list online, and went in excited. I, I was so inspired by this list of, of clients that that this company I had never heard of had worked with. And it felt, it, I was talking to a friend earlier today about how when I first started, I would walk into bookstores and see books that my boss had sold and take them off the shelves and flip to the acknowledgements. And I would see her name and I thought this was the most amazing, sophisticated, rarefied, event I could imagine and I had this fantasy that one day it would happen to me and and it did I think I I think if anything what got me the job was was awe and dedication and you know the good sense to research who I was about to talk to but yeah that's that was there was there was no great great plan uh, not uh, in the conscious brain. Sounds like the subconscious knew what it was doing. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so had you always been a, a big reader and, and book fan prior to this? I am a, a little embarrassed to say that as a child, I was not much of a reader. Um, I was a late reader. I found it very challenging. Uh, and it wasn't probably until maybe third or fourth grade that I started to realize that books could be fun. And it was R.L. Stein's Fear Street that that did the trick for me. Um, I loved those books. Uh, they were some of the only books we could afford. And I just started downing them and, and couldn't stop. And from Fear Street, I transitioned to Stephen King. So sort of horror was was what got me into it. I had always liked ghost stories and um, and I became a reader. I became a reader uh, a little bit later than a lot of folks who work in publishing and who are sort of um, maybe better read in in children's classics than I am. But but I came in on it with with a very commercial lean. Uh, a couple of years later than than most of my colleagues. So, um, first of all, when you uh, found that book uh, in the slush that they went on the sell for six figures, yeah. they gave me a little taste by by a nice drink or a lunch or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't think. No, um, I don't know. Maybe there was there might have been a gift. There might have been a bottle of champagne. I'm not sure. Um, I'm trying to remember and I'm, I can't, I can't say for sure. I know the first book I ever sold on my own, I got a bottle of champagne. Um, I'm trying, I'm not sure if, if I did that first time. I did get a, a hearty congratulations and, and much appreciation, but, <laughs> but maybe not monetary gifts. Well, they did let you leave and come back three times, so. True. <laughs> True. Enough. Yeah, they left the door open. So, so when uh, you, Stephen King, a horror fan, when do you go from that to running to represent middle grade and YA, or have you remained a horror fan who just also now likes middle grade and YA? Uh, 
Sure. I I do still love horror. I do. And and actually it, it is the paranormal space that led me to young adult. I started my career signing adult commercial fiction and one of my clients, Rochelle Mead, had an idea for a young adult novel that she sent me and I fell in love with it, but I wasn't really sure I knew how to sell it. So I asked Michael Barrett, who uh, was already in the YA space, if he could give me a crash course on the who's who of YA publishing, if he could give me a reading list of books that were doing well so I could see what else was out there. And that that book was Vampire Academy, which has gone on to sell over a million copies and spawned uh, a number one New York Times bestselling series that that built my career. I, you know, it it was an amazement uh, to see, and and it's something that built really organically. It was a small advance. Um, but and a paperback original but that book just built and built and built and from there the the first person i signed on um for their ya exclusively was carrie ryan for the forest of hands and teeth which is also a horror novel um one of my most favorites Oh, thank you. Um, if Carrie Ryan is listening, I can't get a hold of you through your website, Miss Ryan. I would love <laughs> to have you on the show. <laughs> I will I will pass word along. Um, I, Carrie was the first person I signed for YA specifically, and, uh, and that book became a New York Times bestseller. And I just thought, you know, I there's something here. There's, there's something about these books that, that is connecting with me. And, and it was the same case with middle grade. Some of my YA authors started to write middle grade. I again asked uh, friends in the business to help me build a reading list and an editor contact list and, and went from there. And it, it was just kind of, a process of following what worked for me and following what I loved and and finding this space in in children's books that I find so inspiring. Um, it was, you know, a series of happy accidents and 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 following following my gut to the material that I was connecting most with, which I didn't expect to be children's and teen, but but was, uh, and uh, very happily. <laughs> Any uh, insight as to why that might be? I am a sucker for a connected reader, and I don't think anyone is quite as passionate as the young adult readership or quite as uh awestruck as the middle grade readership. There is a sense of wonder and joy and the in in the reading process that I am incredibly moved by. So I I I chase a feeling more than anything else and it's it's wanting to know that those readers are out there reading books that I helped get on the shelf and 
and feeling big emotions and and hopefully falling more in love with reading that is that is the goal always to 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 just try to believe that that somewhere out there you're creating a reader um uh moves me more more than than i can really adequately express Oh, I can see it playing on your face, and uh, anyone watching this on YouTube can see it. And I think hear it in your your voice as well. Uh, writers of adult fiction, uh, writers of all things not middle grade, OU, and to a lesser extent me, uh, <laughs> quite a bit of thanks, because who do you think is grooming these readers you're going to be selling to down the road, folks? <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I think... I think children's books have created generation after generation of readers and and the YA and middle grade space have been so rich over the past you know 15 20 years and and are increasingly rich and I I'm really grateful for for the work that 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 everyone in the industry is doing so going back to that 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 first one, that that Vampire Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when does it uh, and, and Miss Me welcome on the show? Also, everybody you represent is welcome on the show. <laughs> um, but uh, when does it go from? I have a good feeling about this. Obviously, you signed it. You're putting your name on it. This is what I'm coming out with, feeling strong. When do, do you begin to to sense that this is? Oh, it's not just me. It's not just in my head. This has really got some momentum. We we knew readers were liking it. We knew fan mail was coming. We knew that sales were consistent. But when the second book came out, it hit the New York Times list at number seven in its first week. And we were awestruck. We didn't see it coming. We didn't know it would happen. And that's when we realized we had hit a critical mass, that word of mouth had spread enough that people were waiting for book two. And by the time we got to book four, um, Blood Promise, great novel, um, heck of a cliffhanger. Um, it, it, we had transitioned to hardcover and her sales numbers were were explosive. And it... It was really, it, it was the kind of organic growth that we don't see as often anymore. I think people are trying to blow things up out, like, out of the gate. You know, you have to be a bestseller immediately or else your books don't succeed. But I think, I think with, some publishers are, are starting to do paperback imprints again and uh, and and looking to build that way, I, it was it was book two. It was the, it was the day book two hit the New York Times list that that we realized we had we had harnessed something, and it was it was going to take us places. Somewhere in there, I assume you're taking all diamond baths. Uh, but prior to that, <laughs> how do you how do you celebrate a, a huge success like that? Oh, how did we celebrate? It was a it was a whirlwind. Um, poor Rochelle uh, was, I mean, poor Rochelle. She was she was also basking in the success and the glory and having the time of her life. But 
Um, you know, but she also didn't have a, a chance to take a break and breathe and really realize what was happening because she was under so much pressure for the next book. The deadlines were fast and furious. And um, I'm trying to think of how we celebrated. I, I do remember um, we went to London together for uh, a day on the set of the movie being made of, of the book. Um, uh, that did not do especially well, but it is what it is. Um, but we but you couldn't have known that when you were on the set. No, we, did, we definitely <laughs> didn't know it was going to be amazing. <laughs> we just, we walked in and, um, my now husband was with me and uh, Rochelle was there and and the the head of publicity at at Penguin, who was her publisher. And I remember us just sort of all meeting up in the lobby of a hotel in London and thinking, you know, who who knew? Who knew this was coming? You know, now it's European. It's it's fancy now. <laughs> so um, that trip was. It was it was the trip of a lifetime. It, it just was so unbelievably exciting, um, and I think it's it's the it's one of those moments that I realized how much bigger something was than myself. And is that the post the last of the three times that you tried to leave agenting? That was yes. I since going full time, I have never quit. Oh, <laughs> perfect. I have no intention of leaving. Um, all of my, all of my, all of my three, my three quittings happened when I was a part-time employee um, and still in college. Oh, okay, sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm gonna say if you can have that experience and then you quit, ah, for... yeah, then, <laughs> then I would deserve this. <laughs> so, okay, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly curious about this sense that that comes over you because you know you've got this track record. Of, of, of picking these incredible books. So how do you approach uh, submissions? And what is it about a submission that starts to get you that, that Spider-Man tingle or whatever it is that goes off that this, this might be something here? Yeah, it's... Oh, how do I know when I love something? It's... It's so hard to explain. Um... You, it, it, sorry, I'm I'm making really good podcast content right now as I <laughs> as I <just laughs> mumble and stutter. Um, no, we're building suspense. The audience is leaned in close. They've stopped washing the dishes. They're hanging on your next word. It's really just a sense of wanting to turn the next page. You know, I I I think I request more manuscripts per. You know my request weight rate per query is probably a little higher than most um, because I, you know, queries are so hard. They're so hard to get right. So I'm not always looking for, you know, only the best ideas and looking for things that, that have potential that, that sound like they might be interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm, I base it so much more on the material itself. And, and I just, you know, I read the first 10 pages of everything wanting to fall in love and 
it is it is sort of a spidey sense of you know if i get to the end of 10 pages and i'm no longer thinking about whether i'm going to fall in love if i'm just reading then i know it's good it's it's sort of a, that the internal critic turns off because i'm just reading for pleasure and i i i it's almost a sense of forgetting that i'm working that i know something's the real deal and uh and when that happens or if i hit a line that i want to you know copy and paste into a chat with with coworkers um then i know i know there's something real there and and then actually that happened the last book i signed um in on in the first paragraph there was a sentence that was so it, it hit me in such a visceral way uh, I thought it was so smart and so funny that I I cut and pasted it to about five of my coworkers just to be like, you should be jealous. I have the best submissions. <laughs> um, and I should have known. I should have known then. I should have known on page one that it was going to be something. Uh, but it, you know, it's just enthusiasm. It's adrenaline. It's it's being able to to close everything everything else out and just read because there's so much noise there's so much email there's so many phone calls that when something makes me able to focus only the words then i know it, i know it's great or i know i think it's great well uh, do you trust you, or do you get a second opinion when you're when you're on board to make sure that you're not barking up the wrong tree or just having a, a brain fart? I <laughs> do. I I don't always trust myself. Um, I know that sounds like a rude question. I, no. I didn't strike you that way because I don't trust myself on so many things. No, it's and it's hard when you're making decisions that really kind of impact the lives of a lot of people, a lot of aspiring authors and and you know, and eventually readers. But I do have coworkers who I think are are have especially great eyes for 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 various things we're all we're all different readers with different different qualities and i i will ask people sometimes uh to read a query to see if to see if i'm crazy or if there really is something there but once i read a manuscript if i finish a manuscript and i love it i sign it i don't i don't get anyone else to read it it's i doubt myself at the query stage but at the manuscript stage, I either know how I'm going to try to sell the book and how I'm going to try to edit the book, or I don't. And that means that sometimes there are great books that I don't represent because I don't have the editorial vision for it. But, you know, it 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 is what it is. Um, I'm going to pass on on future bestsellers. We're gonna pass on some award winners and I'll beat myself up for it. But as I try to remind myself every time I, I'm looking at pub marketplace and seeing <laughs> seeing deals for books that I turned down, I try to remember that it wouldn't have been right if I was the agent. I wouldn't have gotten the deal that the, this other passionate agent 
who loved the book got for it. So I, I really try to remember that and try to believe that, um, you know, not everything is right for me and that's, that's okay. It's got to sound like it's an ongoing effort over 21 years. There have got to have been some that really took off. The, ah! Oh, yeah. Oh, no. There are, <laughs> there are, there are books that I... I Turned down like. Harry Potter twice. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not Harry Potter, but, but there, there are some that really sting. But, you know, the ones that sting more are the ones where I offer representation and they go with a different agent. And when I fall in love with a book and I don't get to work on it, it hurts. And it's, it's totally fair. You know, there are a lot of great agents out there and and people need to go with who they feel right with. But, but those are the books that, that stick with me and and really haunt me. And, and I just think like, Oh, all I want is to be able to say I sold that because I believe in it so much when I pass on something and it does really well, I think, you know, why didn't I see it? What about it didn't work for me? But when I saw it and I was right, then then I I have a hard time letting go. So okay, so I'm a bonehead author uh, that's listened to this amazing podcast interview with you. Clearly, uh, a miracle worker that can make all my dreams come true if I just give you that chance. And you <laughs> love my book, and I am for some reason considering one of the other amazing guests that have been on the, the podcast. Um, how are you going to try to woo me? And at what point is it just more effort than it's worth? Yeah, it's, you know, I feel like agenting has become more competitive over the past few years. Um, I don't know if there are more of us um, or, 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 or what exactly is happening, but I find myself in head-to-head situations with multiple agents more often than I used to. Um, uh, I don't always win, but I win sometimes and I, <laughs> I celebrate those wins. Um, you know, I'll never say I'm the only right agent for a project. I'll never say I'm definitely the right partner. I, what I try to do when I'm, when I'm trying to woo a client is, is share with them what, what I connect with, what is so exciting about their project for me. Um, there are also, you know, I try to talk about my editorial background because I love the editorial process. Um, I talk about the size of my agency and and how often or, or how long everyone has has worked there because we have this unbelievable staff where eight of the fourteen of us have been there for a decade and a half or longer. Um, there is a stability there. There is an expertise. Um, we're a, a medium-sized agency that I think can deliver a big agency feel with the intimacy of a small agency. Um, but it's, it's always in the end, I think it comes down to the connection. It comes down to the relationship. You know, do you trust this person? Do you, does how they respond to your work match what you want to hear? (laughs) Does their editorial vision make sense to you? Um, and then, and then, 
you know, if those things all check out, then, you know, then you have to check, you know, are they at a good agency? Can they actually sell the book? Do they have the experience on all of those things are important, but I, I, it's so relationship based and it's such an unusually intimate relationship because they're your books. They're, you're so passionate about them. You want someone who, who is very caring with them and, and that's that's what I try to focus on. Makes sense to me. I don't know who these jokers are that are that are leaving uh, and going with, with somebody else, but they 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 must all regret the decision. <laughs> I like to think so. Uh, I see you're drinking a Lacroix, and I'm chuckling because I literally have um, ten uh, cases of Lacroix. I do not drink Lacroix, but my wife uh, is a helpless Lacroix addict. <laughs> I am. I'm a hopeless diet coke addict that settles into Lacroix after about eight p.m. <laughs> oh, that's very responsible of you. <laughs> that's yeah. I have to turn off the caffeine at some point and switch to the Lacroix. <laughs> ah, during a podcast, I have my cup of coffee and just accept that I'm going to be up for an hour of reading afterward. Ah, that's fine. <laughs> I, I accept. Um. So, ah, so many questions for you. One thing probably we should do is establish sort of some idea of uh, what your what your likes and dislikes are. We've talked about um, your your likes in reality television back mm-hmm. when I interviewed you in uh, September 2017. Available esteemed audience at middlegradeninja.com. You can read uh, Jim McCarthy's seven question interview. Uh, but you had told me at that time your three favorite books are uh, Saga Solomon by Toni Morrison, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, all excellent top-notch choices. Can't, can't knock on one of them. Um, but three years later, I always like to give people the opportunity to amend. Is there, are there any books you'd like to substitute or add to that list? I'm going to say honestly, I wouldn't change a title. I <laughs> I think that's a powerhouse three. Uh, covers about 200 years of history um, and incredible, incredible writing. Um, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, what are the best books I've read since you interviewed me? Um, the book I most fell in love with last year was, oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to botch the title. It was um, Bernardine Evaristo's Booker-winning novel, whose title starts with the word, I I think it's Girl, Woman, Everything. I might be wrong, Um, which is embarrassing, but it's it's a a truly stunning novel um, that just captured me with its its panoply of incredible voices and and 12 different narrators, and it's, it's... a wonder and a joy. So I would maybe sneak that in as a as a plus one. Would it be Girl, Woman, Other? Girl, Woman, Other is the title. <laughs> I was just sitting here and thinking, we have the Google technology. I could make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that was my first moment of, uh, of real deer in the headlights panic <laughs> on this podcast. There's always one. Uh, smoothly sailed through, not not an issue whatsoever. So okay, 
Um, so everybody's going to read that, get some sense of, of, of what makes Jim McCarthy tick. So are there any specific, uh, obviously everybody can and should read your manuscript uh, wish list page as it updates. Uh, check out, obviously, the, the agency website to see what you're looking for from time to time. But as of this moment, what types of projects are you actively seeking? I am very actively seeking... Uh, contemporary, realistic, middle grade and YA, uh, anything with a big hook uh, that isn't fantasy, um, which is not to say that I'm not looking for fantasy. Fantasy, paranormal, those are spaces that I feel like I'm best known in. Uh, so I'm always seeing that and I always love it. And I think paranormal is coming back and I am ready for it. Um, but what I I'm not always seeing as much of as I would like to see is uh, or are uh, contemporary titles, um, uh, literary uh, voices, anything I haven't heard, anything I haven't read. Um, I'm excited to see. Um, I'm always looking for just sort of whatever whatever feels new, um, which is not incredibly helpful. It's not a really a uh, direct guide. Um, I also, I love family stories. I love uh, middle grade fiction with complicated adult characters uh, who's, who have, you know, interesting impacts on the children in the stories. Um, I think um, to plug one of my own books, uh, Nicole Mellaby's Hurricane Season uh, is about uh, an 11 year old girl whose father is dealing with mental illness and their relationship is is one of the the best I've seen in middle grade literature. It's so tenderly and 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 hauntingly portrayed that I, I can't get enough of it. Um, that sort of emotional truth to to relationships in families, with friends, whatever they may be. I, I, I love to see anything that, anything that resonates. Um, and more, more specifically, I'm very interested in stories of uh, friendship breakups. I, uh, I, and this is maybe, this is just today, but I, it's yesterday I saw somebody tweet about how emotionally volatile uh, it is to to or to have a friendship end when you're a child, um, and it took me just that tweet took me immediately into my past, and and I thought, yeah, there's a lot there. There really is, and I would love to read more friendship stories. I think sometimes there's enough romance. Not every young adult novel needs a needs a romantic uh, element. I would love to see more more friendship stories as well. Friendship, family, you know, it, I, I just want strong characters connecting to other strong characters. I always remark that I don't know that many teenagers from my past that, that fell in love with their one true lifelong love, but I know plenty who held on to their friends. Yeah, uh, exactly. Them probably longer than was advisable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, something else I saw uh, with regard to um, what you're looking for, and, and part of my role in this uh, podcast is to be useful idiot and ask the questions, the dumb questions that other people don't have to ask because I've done it for them. So you're mm-hmm. welcome, esteemed audience. Uh, but something I, I saw that you're looking for uh, is um, you're particularly interested in an asexual, non-binary, or intersex lead. Um, so what is it specifically about that that, that, that would turn your head? Those are voices I haven't really seen published. I um, sorry. I last year I had the privilege of teaching at the writing writers barn in Austin, Texas, and it was the Rainbow Weekend, which was about fifteen authors who all identified as queer. Uh, and the faculty and staff also all identified as queer. And it was one of the most profound experiences in my career. I am endlessly grateful to Corey McCarthy and Amy Rose Capetta who, who invited me to participate. And what came out of that week, that weekend was this sense of having grown up without seeing role models who felt the things that I felt. And uh, I remember interning at the National Book Foundation in 2001 and finding a copy of the book Rainbow Boys that had been submitted uh, for the awards. And I was shocked that a, a book about you know gay boys who were falling in love with each other could be published for the young adult audience, and and looking back, I'm you know I'm a little sad for teen me that I I didn't have those books, and and I'm trying to look at and and this is this is a lot bigger than than just sort of questions of queerness. It also I think brings in questions of of. Uh, race and ethnicity and socioeconomic background and religion. I think there are so many children who have never seen themselves and and I, I want to usher those voices into existence, into publication, uh, so that that moment of discovery can happen to younger and younger people, so that there's a, a broader breadth of, of published voices. Um, and I think when I specifically put out the call for asexual, non-binary, um, and or intersex uh, characters and authors, um, it was because I hadn't seen them in my queries. And I thought, these people are out there and they're writing. I don't know why they're not sending their material to me, but I would like them to know that they can. Um, I hope that is true of all people. I hope that um, that that all people feel comfortable with me. I I know that that's never going to be the case, you know. Um, but I but I try. And um, at that moment, those were those were audiences or or, or authorships that I thought, you know. At that moment in time, I I, I really felt like. A, a sort of calling to to reach out to. 
It makes a hundred percent sense to me. Good for you. Uh, good for them that, that you're out there doing that. Uh, and, and, and providing that opportunity. Uh, at some point, I always um, make it my business to ask about diversity in publishing, which I feel like we, we've covered your role, what you're doing. How are you seeing publishing overall? Uh, obviously, you, know, you and I are pretty close to about the same age. 1999, you're graduating from college. I was graduating, just graduated from, uh, from high school, so not that far off. Uh, and people uh, underestimate about how vastly different the world was yeah. uh, when we were teenagers and, and, and how, um, you know, it's, it's a long way to go. But my, 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 my God, uh, my, my wife is African-American and she often laments that she had, um, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself. What's the name of the movie with Bruce Leroy? Uh, and, um, oh, shoot. Uh, it's the 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 Shogun Knight of of Harlem, and it's 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 a terrible movie. And she's gonna and it's got uh, theme music. Oh my God, what is it? She will never forgive me if I <laughs> the name of this movie. Uh, so to save my the last dragon. Whew, that was oh, the, there we go. Yeah, <laughs> the last dragon versus uh, today's kids. You know, got Black Panther and and and, and Creed and, and sequels to look forward to. So we are seeing progress, certainly marked progress. I think in our lifetimes. Where do you see publishing making improvements, and what still needs to be done? Hmm. Um, Just a very well, small, not at all broad question. Yeah, no. <laughs> Yeah, a small, easy question that I am particularly qualified as a as a forty year old white man to answer. Of knowledge, with knowledge of all the publishing, um, <laughs> it's you know we see these studies coming out every year about, especially in children's literature, the Lee and Lowe surveys of of representation. How many books are coming out with with black leads? How many books are coming out with Asian leads? Of those books, how many are written by Asian authors, by black authors, by indigenous authors? And the number going up, they, they are creeping up, but they're not steadily increasing, which is disappointing. Um, and I think really what publishing has to do more than anything else is hire a workforce that looks like the American population. And to do so, we need to create spaces that are welcoming of all voices. Uh, we need to pay salaries that are livable. We need to expand the borders of publishing beyond the five boroughs of New York City. We need to stop having unpaid internships, which privilege, you know, well-off college students who can afford to come into an office and work for free. Uh, we need to pay people and we need to hire people because, you know, publishing is a lot of really, including myself, it's a lot of really well-meaning white liberals who mess up all the time. And until we have colleagues who are not only present, but feel empowered to give voice to their feelings, to their beliefs, 
to what they know to be true, I don't think we solve this. I don't think, I don't think just surveys or just diversity initiatives or, or just tweeting with the right hashtags. I don't think these things solve the problem. I think it has to be systemic change. And in terms of, you know, my own role in that, I, you know, I, I believe I need to do more. And sometimes I am a little bit hamstrung as to what, what that exactly looks like. Um, sometimes I think it, it means stepping back a little bit more because I, I do come from a position of, of quite a lot of privilege. I did chance into this industry. I became incredibly lucky. Um, sometimes it means uh, really paying attention to the fact that I'm signing up more authors who are not white uh, that I'm sending to young editors of color who are just starting out, who are trying to build lists. Uh, it, it means supporting populations and, and hearing them. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of words that I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have a solution, but I'm, I'm, I, I hope, I hope that I'm doing my part to work towards it. And I don't, I don't always know that I am, but I, I, I know that I always hope to, if that, that's sort of where I'm at in a nutshell. I think that's head and shoulders above what's been done in the past. And if not where we need to be, definitely moving in, in the right direction. I gave you an impossible task. Speak for all the publishing. <laughs> I, I think you did it. <laughs> you nailed it. Thank you. <laughs> um, something a little bit um, more, uh, less less ethereal. Uh, we were talking about you accept a lot of manuscripts. So just give us some idea of the numbers. How many queries on average are you receiving a day, a week, versus how many uh, submissions are you making versus how many clients are you taking on a year? Sure. I usually have... Hmm. I want to say I usually have between one and 200 queries a week. I, at any given time, have between 30 and 40 manuscripts on my Kindle. And I'm probably, I hate giving this last number because it sounds discouraging. I'm probably signing about five people a year. Um, and I, I know those odds aren't good. Um, but... But in those numbers are, you know, are people who are going to other agents, are people who I'm passing along to colleagues uh, who are, are younger than I am, who have more space on their list. Um, the, the numbers feel so daunting. Um, I, I, even when I am saying them, I just, I feel bad for the author listening. Um, I, I don't sign on a lot. I turned down a lot, a lot more than I will ever be able to sign. Um, but I, I still want to encourage everyone to try. You know, it's a hard process. You're putting yourself out there. I, it's difficult, but um, but give it, give it a chance. Give it a chance because, you know, I think people. I think sometimes very talented people shut themselves down before before they try and sometimes very overconfident people who aren't as talented are, are pushing out material that is 
you know, that are just things that I can reject right away. So I, you know, I never want someone not to try just because they're overwhelmed by the percentages for whatever that's worth. Well, how many clients are you working with already? Um, I have a client list of about 50, which is substantial. Um, it's enough to keep me on my toes. <laughs> and, and about two weeks a year, I am suddenly so backlogged that everything has to slow down. Uh, but for the most part, everyone is on a different enough schedule that I'm able to, um, to, to, to stay on top of everything. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty big list, but uh, an exciting one. Well, I'd, uh, we'll, we'll focus on the, on, on the five luckies and just assume that the rest are all going to find uh, wonderful agents in the back catalog of this show, folks. They're, <laughs> they're waiting for you. Go listen to the show, um, and, and, and you'll hear all kinds of wonderful uh, agents to submit to. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, uh, so um, for those uh, five that are – say I'm, I, I, I'm going to sign on with you. It's day one. Uh, what happens first? I assume we have a phone conversation before we sign any kind of contract and you tell me what you're going to do. I tell you why I'll try not to screw that up. How does that conversation mm -hmm. go? And we'll go from there. Yeah, that conversation is, um, it's usually a bit of a whirlwind. I like to surprise people by offering representation on the phone uh, with no warning. <laughs> so um, you don't email to say, I'm going to, I'm going to call. I don't. I don't. Because the, the, the sort of shock and joy that comes over people is, it's too exciting not to, not to do it. Um, which That's usually means there's... terribly wrong? <laughs> well, it... I'm at a funeral right now, but I'm really glad you called her. <laughs> well, no, happily, happily people, people usually don't pick up because they don't, they don't know the number. So there's a, it's a lot of voicemails um, more than it is people actually picking up. Um, I did, when I signed, I mentioned her earlier, uh, when I signed Nicole Mellaby, uh, she was, <laughs> I can't remember now actually if it was when I signed her or when she got her first book deal, but I remember calling her and she was um, in a gas station in New Jersey and accidentally popped the trunk to her car and was so just flabbergasted and and confused and happy. Um, it was a very fun call, um, whichever of the, the great things that we were talking about, um, whether it was, you know, new representation or, or a new contract. Um, it was a very, it was a very fun call. Um, so yeah, so there's also it's often a first and second conversation that happen on the phone um, because a lot of questions go unasked that people just forgot about in in the rush. Um, but I sort of walk through first my feelings about the book and then what a submission process looks like when you work with me. How many people I go to, uh, how I communicate, how often you'll hear from me what information you're entitled to, which is essentially all of it. You're, you're, you should be entitled to all of the information about where your book is being sh sent and shared. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a um, an overview of how the agent-client relationship works. Um, and I sign a lot of first-time authors, which is a lot of fun. Uh, so you sort of never know on that first call 
how much someone's going to know. Uh, so it, it, it's a little different every time. You know, some people have done all of the research in the world and know exactly what to expect. And other people, you know, have researched agents but don't really know exactly how the process works. So it's um, it's the phone call, and then from the phone call, we get to the agency agreement where you sign a, a contract where we promise our best efforts to sell the work within a limited amount of time um, for a commission. Uh, and then from there, step three is editing your work. Um, I always say that I, I'll only sign projects that I would feel comfortable sending out in the shape that they're in but I have never actually signed something and sent it out in the shape it was in because I love the editorial process. It's my chance to really get my hands in there and, 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 and work with the material. And I don't need to get something ready to have a cover put on it, but I need to get it ready to, to sell for the best deal I can, I can get for it. So, uh, so it's, yeah, it's call agency agreement, edits and then submission and and everything you know depends on how the submission goes you ever uh, reject something and say hey this isn't right for me at this time but i think the following however many changes would be fantastic and hint 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 i'm taking the time to write you an editorial note <laughs> uh and then I, I i resubmit to you does that does has that happened for you in the past where you've been able to sign somebody that absolutely has happened um and I also mentioned her earlier. Uh, Taylor K. Mejia is someone whose book, We Set the Dark on Fire, I turned down twice. And both times said, you know, I have big ideas. No, I turned it down three times. I turned it down twice and said she should rewrite and send back to me if she agreed with my notes. And she did. And the third time, I had this sort of light bulb moment where I thought, oh, there's actually, I, I really know how to fix it now. Um, and sent a sort of a big a big pitch and and said you know i don't think you're going to want to do a third revision for me um and taylor to her endless credit wrote back and said i will make these changes <laughs> if you sign me and i did i did i loved it i loved sight sight unseen just on her word that the changes would be she made you're on board revisions and she was so talented, is so talented. And it sort of took her shaking me out of it to me like, these are structural changes. You know I can write. You know I have good characters. You know that on a sentence level, what I'm doing is fantastic. And she was right. She was right. I was being I was being too too strict. I should have signed her on and and I did. And it's been, we've sold um, four, five, seven books together now um, in the past three years. So it's it's been a really a, a pretty fantastic uh, journey since since she convinced me that I would be an idiot if I let her go. I'm going to try and tease a less happy, less inspiring story out of you. Because uh, I know authors obsess oh. over that phone call, especially if it's going to come unannounced. Hey, I'm at a gas station. Oh, my God, Jim McCarthy. Forget the car. Let's let's <laughs> talk. Um, what 
have you ever experienced an author that you were pretty pretty convinced you were going to sign because you loved the book shoot themselves in the foot uh, at that point or uh, otherwise um, it's just how how do authors avoid screwing themselves up and how what's the best way to handle that call that maybe flies contrary to some not so great ways you've heard people handle that call yeah I don't I'm trying to think of people who've really screwed up on the call and I don't I don't know that that's you know I've had relationships with clients where we've sort of come to an impasse where where we're not sharing the same vision where where they're not feeling the level of support that they need or or where they're writing books that don't feel like things that I I know how to sell or they're writing about topics that 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 I'm not particularly interested in. Those things do happen. Um, and we work through them and sometimes people change agents. That's, you know, a part of the process, but I don't know that it happens. I don't know that it happens at the initial call. I don't know that I've had anyone be so appalling or concerning that I ran away from the call and just thought like, I'm not, not that one. <laughs> not, um, people are usually pretty well behaved at the start. Well, and I'm uh, un uh, unbelievably biased because I think authors are just better people than everyone else. Uh, <laughs> but I always assume that if somebody can write a book that's beautiful enough that you would want to give them the phone call, that they should be somewhat enlightened enough to maybe be a decent human being. Although there are a couple of authors I won't name who would prove me wrong. <laughs> we have all we have all met at least one author who who shook us to our core. <laughs> <laughs> There's that that thing, don't meet your idols, um, which can be true. Um, but no, you're right. Authors are are largely wonderful, uh, neurotic, uh, fantastic people that are um, a joy to work with. Um, yeah, but you know, not everyone not everyone's a match. So um, to get some of those questions out of the way, and I'm watching our time, I'm, I'm seeing it slip away. Uh, so I want to be selective, but I, I do want to ask, what kind of relationship can a, an author look forward to having with you? Um, do you tell you open to phone calls at any time? How involved are you going to be with me through each stage of the process? Um, I, I like to think of myself providing essentially uh, a, a kind of individually catered experience where some authors are needier than others. Some authors want feedback sooner than others. I am willing to look at a list of ideas and pick my three favorite. I'm also willing to let someone write the first 75 pages of something before I see it. I, um, I think it can kind of be summed up by, by how I submit. I, um, when I submit, I tell authors I'm only going to be in touch if I have information that they absolutely need to know. And for everything else, they come to me. Because some people panic if they have too much information, but some people panic if they don't have enough. So I want it to be an author-guided experience where they can always access me, um, email preferable to calls, um, but just because I'm faster on email. Um, they always have access to me. I will almost always respond within 
one business day um, and I will provide the information that they're asking for. That's, that's my goal. That is my, my every wish as an agent is to be fast, to be responsive and to, to provide the experience that, that the individual author is looking for from me. That's the hope. I don't know that I always succeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who, who always succeeds in everything 100% of the time? Um, but uh, I, sometimes I, I, I talk with agents on here, and we've, we've heard them say, you can call me anytime, night or day. And I'm like, oh, my God, I would never give anyone that permission. <laughs> so uh, email, and within 24 hours, even 48 hours, that seems reasonable. If it's the weekend, Monday. Monday is fine. <laughs> Yeah, I like to be very accessible, but, you know, (laughs) we all have our limits. Uh, Something that I have to ask, uh, because I ask everybody, and uh, we can't make an exception. Jim McCarthy, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost, and do you believe in them? um, hmm. I have not seen a flying saucer. I can definitely say that. Um, I... I alternate uh, answers on whether or not I believe in ghosts. Um, I I will say that my first New York City apartment post graduation, I at the time one hundred percent believed it was haunted. Um, do I still believe that? I'm not sure, uh, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. Kind of what kind of creepy stuff happened to you? If you don't mind elaborating just a little. Um, I was, it was, it was an old, or if you're saving it for a novel, no, it's fine. It was, <laughs> I was in an old brownstone in, um, in Borham Hill in Brooklyn. And, uh, my bedroom was, uh, off the, the what, what had been the ballroom, uh, or the parlor. Um, and it had these sliding pocket doors, uh, that would periodically open and close um, without without anyone being near them. Um, I had lights that turned on uh, electronics that would die. Um, it just it um, it there were often footsteps overhead, and we were on the top floor. It just everything. It, it felt very wrong, and I. Um, had taken over the bedroom in that apartment from a friend of mine. And after we had, um, we had both moved out. We, we said, you know, did you, did you believe that you saw an older woman near the kitchen every once in a while? And we kind of confirmed it between the two of us. And there was just this sense that, that, that an older woman was there. And, um, we both believed and, and, you know, take take that as you will. <laughs> well, there you go, esteemed audience. We should have opened with this. Now, I mean, confirmation of the existence of an afterlife. That's <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> we've, we've buried the lead. <laughs> no, I, I 100% believe you. I love, I love a good ghost story. Yeah, I don't know I believe me. It's true. I do love a ghost story. But, you know, I... I'm so I don't necessarily believe, but I definitely don't disbelieve. If that's sort of an in-between enough answer, I think I'm going to start taking the believe part out of it for the flying saucers. 
Because as far as I'm concerned, that's about two more Pentagon confirmations away from absolute fact that we're going to have to rewrite our textbooks. Fair enough. Oh, I could uh, I could go on talking to you all night. I, I feel like we've crushed it. This has been a tremendous interview. Enough time passes. Maybe one day we'll we'll have to think about maybe doing this again because I've I've got more questions for you than than we'll ever get to. Uh, but we'll end with this. My my final question is always some variation of for all the authors listening. If there were some pieces of advice that you could give them that they would take to heart that you know would make their careers better, either at the start, in the middle, wherever wherever you want to advise them on, or all of it, uh, what would you say to them? I would say that the agent-client relationship is so foundationally important to your work as you move through your career, you will lose editors. They will either be laid off or they will move to other houses. You will have books that are orphaned. But if you have an agent who is always there for you, they're your constant. They're the person who understands you and who you understand. So nothing is more important than getting that relationship right. And I don't want people to ever feel like they need to hold on to an agent just because they got one. Um, I want people to respect themselves enough to fight for an agent worthy of them and know that sometimes it is definitely the right decision to switch. you know, keep going until you find the person who who really believes in you and who you really believe in. That's, I think, my biggest piece of advice. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, Jim, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, social media, all that good stuff? Sure thing. Uh, you can find me uh, on the agency website, which is www.distel.com. I'm also on Twitter at, oh, shoot, I think at Jim McCarthy 528. Um, you know, I'm, try, I'm trying to spend a little less time there than usual, um, but, but I, I always get dragged back eventually. Um, but yeah, definitely start with the agency website and, and you can find me from there. I'm taking Twitter and Facebook off my phone. I just stare at my laptop more now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know the feeling. (laughs) Well, Jim, thanks uh, again for an absolutely tremendous episode and for being a wonderful guest. Uh, Esteemed audience, as always, check out middlegradeninja.com. Read a written interview with Jim, plus hundreds of other literary agents, editors, authors, folks that you would be interested in, as well as the entire back catalog of the show. Check that out. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and or the Book of David Chapter 1. They're free. Go nuts. Uh, And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. 